the fate of sin is what I'm going to talk about tonight. All right, now last week I covered all those uh, contrasts, remember? Anybody remember even a single one of them? I covered too many. And no, yeah, I didn't think so. Sure, it, it had to do with the administrators, the, priest, the priestly role. It had to do with the, the people of it, the people of the government of the new... In other words, the children of Israel uh, represented themselves. And, stuff. and then it had to do with the sanctuary. There was an earthly sanctuary and there's a heavenly sanctuary here. It had to do with uh, resources. The point of it is that Jesus turns out to be the central advantage that we're taking advantage of. And one of the big areas over which we're taking advantage is what happened uh, <laughs> what happened and what happens to sin under the new covenant. Okay? And then what do we do? So uh, I had too many individual points last week. I only have one point this week. And it's about sin. We're only going to talk about one thing. But there's some stuff about it. But I do want to walk through it. So we're going to look at some references in Hebrew in light of the New Covenant about sin. And I just really, I'm going to pray for just a second. I don't always pray, but I think that this topic is so important, Father, because in most versions of our faith as we've grown up, Jesus was responsible for our sin in the sense of dying so that it could be forgiven. But we are remaining responsible for managing it, avoiding it, confessing it, overcoming it. And I believe, Father, that that is a lie that is designed to strip sons of God of faith and power and literally of their sonship. And so I pray that you would open our hearts to the fact that one of these great exchanges, these great alternatives, great I mean big, powerful, amazing, uh, in the new covenant, in the government under which you are loving us, continuing to love us as you loved us in the under previous covenants and under previous relationships. But this is one, Lord, that's, that's, that's crazy big element of embracing our sonship, living as a friend of Jesus in the new covenant. So help us understand it. All right. First verse that I chose is the, is the one that's actually in the articulation of the covenant itself. Hebrews 8, 12. This is out of the David Billinghart. Because I will be merciful toward their unrighteousness, and I will certainly remember their sins no more. Now, this particular verse is the last verse listed in the retelling of the covenant prophecy from Jeremiah. And the things above it are because of this. And I love it that David Bentley Hart used because. When I taught it the first time, I went through that word, and a lot of people have it for. So there's clauses up there that say and, and then there's clauses that say for. The word for could just as easily be translated because, because it's a causative situation. The uh, I will uh, put my law in their hearts and write it on their mind. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no one will tell of his neighbor or his brother know the Lord because all will know me from the least to the greatest because I will have mercy on their unrighteousness 
in their sin, I will remember no more. So the foundation for the functioning and the giving and receiving of all the other promises is because of this. The next one is right at the very beginning. I concentrate a lot on Hebrews 1-2 when we talk through it. But 1-3 says, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the first mention in this, in this uh, telling of this, this letter of Hebrews, this instruction of Hebrews, that is going to wrap itself in part around the new covenant, but really what it's going to wrap itself around is the new intimacy, the new this. When we get uh, in a, a couple more chapters, we're going to see that, that uh, we're being treated like sons. We're going to see that we're coming to Mount Zion, to a holy place, to the spirits of men made perfect. It's a relational thing. It's, a, a, it's the bridge between heaven and earth that Jesus said pray happens. And this is a big one here. So Jesus sat, uh, he made purification of sins. So relative to sin, now in 2.17, says, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Propitiation for the sins of his people. Now, this is a verb uh, uh, of the, I think it's Hilas, It's the Hilasmos family, Hilasterium family. It's the, the verb form. But something that we've learned around here, and if, if, you, if I haven't had a chance to talk to you about it, uh, Hilasmos is the Greek word that's used in the Septuagint over 300-something times for the gold lid to the ark, the mercy seat. And so in, the, in, in all the noun forms, like in 1 John, where it talks about him uh, making propitiation for sin, I think it's valuable. I think it's valuable to think of it as a place of meeting. Now, it's not any place, because the gold lid wasn't the sacrifice uh, that was done during atonement. It, wasn't where the blood, it was where the blood was reading. It wasn't the blood. It was the place, literally, where the presence of God manifests between the wings of the cherubim. And that's what I think we're, we're, we're thinking of here, is that it, it's not just Jesus making an atoning sacrifice, although that is a true way to, to say it. It's literally Him being the place where the presence of God interacts with people and does away with our sin. The next one is, is here in Hebrews 9, 26-28. This is again David Bentley Hart's translation. As then it would have been necessary for Him to suffer often from the foundation. Keep in mind, what we're talking about is sin. Okay, not just general Bible knowledge about Hebrews. As then it would have been necessary for him to suffer often from the foundation of the cosmos, now rather he has appeared just once at the consummation of the ages, and look at these words, to abolish sin. Other translations say to take away sin, to do away with sin, to abolish sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is reserved for human beings to die once and thereafter the judgment, so also... The anointed, having been offered once in order to take away the sins of many, will appear a second time apart from sin, separate from sin, without regard to sin, some say, to those waiting him for salvation. So here's the, the highlighted parts I want to talk about. In relationship to sin, Jesus abolished it. Now that's hard to believe. Could say he nuked it. It's hard to believe because it's hard to understand what, what, how sin seems to be abolished when you see it all around you in the culture and stuff. So that's something we're going to have to talk about. But he, he abolished sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And then he offered once in order to take away the sins of many. The offered once part is going to really be significant if we're to believe and live in the context of what Jesus did and what we are in the new, new covenant. Because we're not in the same situation as if we were to try to live on the basis of just self-righteousness, try to live managing our own sin, try to figure out how to be a better person. You know, that's all good stuff, being a better person. But And then, get this, it's he will appear a second time apart from sin. The way uh, Tom Wright puts it is that phrase, apart from sin, he translates as a whole other sentence in there. He will appear a second time. This will no longer have anything to do with sin. Jeremy's saying, Amen. This is really huge, guys. This is one of the huge concepts of the New Covenant that we need to embrace. And, and again, I, I really tried hard last week, and I've had so many good friends helping, and it's been a great learning experience for me. The best way to understand the New Covenant versus the uh, previous covenant, so it's not as a competitive thing, it's that, the, it's that what Jesus has accomplished is accomplished by Jesus. And that everything that led up to that was pointing to that, and when Jesus actually did it, he did it once, and now we are standing, if we will, well, we are, whether we recognize it or not, in the full benefits of this once-for-all kind of thing. And it's, it's hard. I mean, I was just on the Theology Roundtable today, and I could tell, I could tell that most of the men and women in there, including me, sometimes I slip into it too, we're still trying to understand the right outcome. But this is the right source this is how we get to the outcome, even if we don't understand it. Now this makes, because this is once, for, for the main, this makes, Scripture makes sense, it otherwise doesn't, like over in First John, where John says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Well, how is that possible? When we go a little deeper into 9 and 10, we're going to understand that the, 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 the singular difference between what the sacrifices could provide in the Old Covenant, and what Jesus once for all sacrifice provided is a clean conscience up here. It took away sin. And He's coming back without regard to it. Now, that one phrase should set you free from the fear and the abuse of an eschatology that says Jesus is just coming back to separate everybody, to, to identify everybody's sin, to punish everybody, I don't understand why people, I mean, I don't, I don't have all the answers about how judgment's going to manifest and what's going to happen, but I guarantee you this, uh, this is true. Jesus is not coming back to square up the accounts of sin. He's not. He squared the accounts of sin up. He's coming back for those that are waiting for him for salvation, and that's what we need to be doing. All right. Uh, here's another one. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time. Whoop, sorry. There we go. Back. All right. There we go. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But he, okay, and, and all of these things were held for Jesus. Functionally, the sacrifices kept the society going, kept the people going. But they did not take away sin. They just they they could not because it couldn't dislodge the conscience of it. 
the guilt of that conscience. Okay? But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. This next one, 17-18, he then adds, by no means will I remember their sins anymore. So this is later in Hebrews, after chapter 8, after the first delineation of the elements of the covenant. And uh, they bring this back up, both prophetically, uh, from Jeremiah and what God declared, by no means will I uh, still remember their sins and their lawless deeds. But this is what's added to it about what happened to sin. Since that is true, God can say that because of this once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. God can say, I'll have mercy on your transgressions. I won't remember your sins anymore. No. Because, and where there is forgiveness, there's no longer an offering for sin. So of all of the talk about the priest having to offer annually and the people's uh, sins being offered, and, and of all the details of the offerings, the one distinctive that was embraced and moved into in the new covenant is the sacrifice Jesus became the sacrifice himself one time one time and because God doesn't remember their sins there is no longer an offering for sin this particular verse is why I put the part in the title slide so what do we do because what do you do when you find something going on in your own life? What do you do when we find um, you know, sin or carnal behavior or whatever else? We've got to figure that out. Otherwise, we're going to back away from what this covenant is about and we're going to back away from the singular advantage it gives us in Christ to live as sons. All right, so here's a summary of sin's status. God affirmative... <laughs> can't say it. God affirmatively does not remember our sins. Alright? So, this is the first thing I would ask you to believe. And I would ask you overtly to believe it because it doesn't make sense. The way we've been brought up in Christianity, there's no way that an omniscient God doesn't remember our sins. But this is not about character. It's not about essence. This is about function. God sees Jesus in proximity. And He knows that Jesus has taken away the sin of the world. That's His title as the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist announced it at the beginning of his ministry. Hebrews confirms it. God, because Jesus has done that, doesn't remember our sins. Now, one of the interesting things, um, one of the interesting things, several years ago, uh, at, at the same group that, that we were participating in online today, I was there in person, and we were having some wonderful conversations, and things got around to a, a certain group of people that, that uh, their lifestyle is a sin, and I'll just leave you to imagine that. And there was a lot of compassion in the room and a lot of discussion about that. And uh, the conclusion was, was that the Lord was, was loving those people and working with those people, and they loved Him. But what are we going to do with them? You know, do we let them be ushers? Do we let them teach Sunday school? 
And so the, the, the discussion had kind of revolved around the sin of a class of people. And I was, I was kind of struggling with it, and I was thinking, how do, I, how do I feel about this? How do I think about this? It was about four years ago, five maybe. And uh, so we had a break for lunch, came back after lunch, and I raised my hand, and I said, this question may not sound relevant to the discussion we just had, but I think it is. I, I go, do we believe that the, the criteria of the new covenant is relevant today, or is it going to be relevant in the future? And everybody goes, oh, of course it's relevant today. It's relevant today. I said, well, okay, then in that discussion about the sin of these people that we were having and that you want to have in our churches to find out what, what we're going to do about their sin, keep in mind that we cannot have that discussion with God. And everybody got super quiet in the room. And I didn't think they understood what I said. Uh, you understand what I was saying, right? If God forgets your sin, he's not going to have a conversation with you about it. And he's not going to have a conversation, especially with a third party about it. And I, I said, so in other words, and Harold put his hands up and said, whoa, stop. No other words necessary. We heard what you said. And it was really cool, though, because it led to a whole different concept. of. How, and and this, is, this illustrates to me why we have to ask the question, how do we think about and how do we deal with sin? Period. General, big, capital S sins, small sins, our sins, your sins, everybody. How do we deal with it if we're actually going to live in the new, new covenant? And why do we need to wrestle with it? Because it's, I think if we deal with it the way it is, just simply laid out in here, it's going to transform the way we live with one another and with the world and everything else. And by goodness, we know we have to transform the way we live. The world is absolutely screwed up. Our country's all confused. But it's all over the place. And sin, sin is one of the huge lies of history. Sin is, is, is one of the things that stole the power of death and started to administer it. And it, it, it acted like, and it worked its way into places in our thinking and our psyche and our religion and everything where it has the ability to tell us who we are, to define us. And that's just not the truth. That is not the truth. And we have to work a little bit, and we have to think a little bit to back away from that. Otherwise, it'll keep trying through the work of the accuser, of the brethren, to define who you are, and what you're worth, and what your neighbor's worth, and what the other people are worth, what the irritating people are worth, people you disagree with, all that kind of stuff. So this is a big one. If we want to act like God, we're not going to spend a lot of mental energy on sin. Ours or other people's. We've got to figure out something else to think about. Jesus made purification. And that whole phrase of, and after he made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down in power authority. So I used to think about sin like the blood that Jesus shed on the cross is like an elixir. And when I need some cleansing from sin or forgiveness or something, I could take a little eyedropper of that and boop it on my head, and that would cleanse me. That's how you think about it. Okay, that's dumb. Then we ran into a, a kind of a section of the church that was everything was about the blood. It was about drawing bloodlines around everything. You guys ever be a part of that? Uh, I'm not saying there was no good that came out of that, but I'm telling you what, that is a diminishing and a localized short-term way of thinking about the power of the blood. Jesus is not running around 
prescribing bloodlines around things to keep demons away. He is seated at the right hand until his enemies are made uh, his footstool. Okay? So we just have to think differently. And I'm not even 100% sure I can tell you how we are supposed to think, but I at least want to cut away those other cords and say, well, if we don't, if we don't think that way, how can we think? Here's another one. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. And note this when you read that. It's plural. It's plural. We had a very robust discussion on Tuesday about whether we should think of ourselves as a part of a group that God has done something for or as individuals. And I do think that there's reasons to, to uh, understand that there's truth in both. But in this case, we're better off thinking about sin being atoned for for all of us rather than it being an individual application by application. Sin, forgiveness, sin, forgiveness, sin, forgiveness. Because that's what kept me for most of my life embracing a theology and a practice where win, lose, or draw, three-quarters of my job was managing sin. And I don't actually think any of my job is managing sin. But I drift back into it because I don't really know what my job is. <laughs> and that's where I think we can come and get it as sons and, and this kind of stuff. Okay, Jesus appeared at the consummation of the ages to abolish sin in the sacrifice of himself. Now, I think I can comprehend that if Jesus chooses to sacrifice himself, he's the ultimate sacrifice. And then, you know, he was uh, touched by the feeling of our infirmities, yet without sin, all this kind of stuff. He, he uh, uh, is the high priest according to the, an indestructible life. So everybody else that sin got its grip on and took into death stayed dead. But Jesus didn't. He broke that. Now, there's some exceptions. Uh, a couple were raised from life, but they did, died later. And then there's Enoch. Um, Jesus appeared at the consummation of the ages. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that when Jesus uh, abolished sin in the sacrifice of Himself, that was the end of time? No. This phrase means that it was the, 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 the fulcrum of time, the object of time, the point of time. Now, here's the beautiful thing about if we'll get a, a decent understanding of the New Covenant in association with this particular act, that means that you and I are living in the abolishing of sin in our past. Now, I know that time probably works different in heaven because Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But time doesn't work differently here. It's still linear, and we're still all in a position where if we can understand this, we in fact are living in the last days. We're living in the days of the last covenant. We're living in the days of the full abolishing of sin in the sacrifice of Jesus himself. And the fact that we don't think that way and we don't see it around us is just... It's just fuel to learn and to, to, to challenge how little we are letting the beauty, glory, and the finality of the new covenant have place in our life. Most of us just want to manage our sin. Most churches want you to manage your sin. I want you to learn to live in a, in, a, in a consummation of the ages where Jesus has abolished your sin as being an issue. 
How are we going to live? How's that going to look? I don't know. I've never been around a lot of people that tried. I want us to be those people. I want us to take this seriously and see what God does. Jesus is appearing a second time that will no longer have anything to do with sin. We talked about that. Change the way you think of the future. Change the way you think of Jesus coming back. My gosh. All right, so Tom, thank you for sending that to me. Um, Jonathan Kahn is promoting a project called, we are going there, The Return. To me, this is, this is wrong on so many fronts. One, calling it The Return. Jesus is going to return. He's going to appear a second time, but it's not going to be to manage sin, to judge sin, to condemn sin, to identify everybody with sin. It's not. It's not. If He was to do that, if the Father was to do that, if the Spirit were to do that, they would have to be wiping what Jesus did on the cross in the mud. It's just not going to happen. And so somebody's got to change the way we're thinking. All right, so here's this thing. They're promoting it. And yes, I am going to go there. Somebody's got to speak up against it. It's this whole Chronicles or Second Chronicles 7.14 thing all over again. My people who are called by my name. Okay. Here's, uh, here's the problem I have with it. Uh, there's two, several. One is it fundamentally is a way for our self-protective spirit in false humility to say really the deplorable condition of the, of the world right now is God's fault. Because He didn't keep us out of it and only He, through our repentance, can fix it. And so there, you know, th- this project is designed and it'll probably trigger it unless somebody can, can give an alternative reason to do something different. You know, they're, they're calling to have a, a 10 days of prayer in September, a million people on the mall, all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I know what it's like. I was there uh, in the Washington Mall, March for Jesus with uh, Promise Keepers. It's cool. It is cool. Uh, that kind of stuff is fun. But I thought, if you take all the airfare, everybody that's going to fly back to Washington, to beg God to do something that He's already done. If you take all the money, and you take all the energy, and you take all the time off of work, and you take all this kind of stuff, and if we broke up into groups of 100 or, or, or 150 people, and this 150 people flew to Minneapolis and did some honest legwork and research and found the, the owners of the burned out businesses and said, how can we help? Behind us 100 people who are willing to put boots on the ground to help you either relocate your business to a city that's not insane or build it up again in the one that's here. And we've got a 1,000 people behind it that are ready to write a check to help you do that. And then another 100 went to another place. And you had another 500 behind them. All of that self-aggrandizing, aren't we humbling and repenting? Aren't we the source that's going to save this country? If it were turned into relationship with people because we don't have to judge people of their sin and we don't have to remember all that stuff anymore, and then you, you have a group of people who are anointed and gifted to do that, to find their way into the groups of Black Lives Matter leaders and just listen. Just listen and see if they can bring Jesus' perspective. You think Christ is not going to use somebody in a situation like that? Of course He is. 
I remember the first time I thought about this and how resources could be transferred differently was I was uh, reading an article back during the Gulf War, and they were tallying up how many millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, were being spent in the uh, cruise missiles and Phoenix and all that kind of stuff and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, gosh, what if, what if we paid people 60 grand a year for a year to go over there and get to know these people and talk to them about Jesus? What's the chance of, of having what everybody's praying for, a revival in Iran, if you flooded the borders of that place with people instead of bombing them. And I'm not like a super pacifist. I think the military is great, and there's, I think a lot of good things have come from war. But we've never tried it. We send a, a dozen missionaries over with like minimal support, and God does amazing things. What if we took $100 billion and funded that? And that's the way I feel about this thing. We're sitting here asking God to do something that He's asked us to do. He's asked us to do it. We had an ascension on uh, Wednesday, and the outcome of the whole ascension, I was going to start the service with this, but got distracted. The outcome of the whole ascension was we ended up saying, Father, we declare that we will receive, or we will recognize and receive the glory that you have placed on us as sons. And we will seek to pass that glory to the people around us. Now, I don't care whether you think ascensions are cool or weird or what. When some brings you to the point where you're standing there in, in, in empowered to receive the revelation of your own glory, you are putting yourself in a position to fulfill the Word of God in Romans chapter 8. Or to, to see people's sins released on them. And the New Covenant is not about begging for repentance over things that you can't really remember anyway. There's no one in this entire exercise that is going to accurately recall and articulate everything that they need Jesus once for all propitiation to cover. It just doesn't work that way. So anyway, I'm fired up about it a little bit. I appreciate Tom sending me the thing. And it's another thing. And I've got a question. I've got a question, yes, for Jonathan Kahn. The question is, why does your eight-and-a-half-minute promotional video about trying to rescue the country with a redemptive act not mention the name of Jesus one time? And yes, I'm going to continue to ask that question until I get an answer. Something's wrong, and this is what it is, ignoring this covenant, trying to live in the resource of a previous one. Not the previous one that we're talking about, the old one. We're just talking. We're not dedicating Solomon's temple. We're trying to live as sons of the living God. And we're trying to see creation come out of frustration, and we're trying to see people set free. And somebody's got to pay attention to the new covenant. Jesus offered one sacrifice for all time. You know what that means? That means that everything necessary for the person in front of you to be free has already been done. And, and then if you go on other passages of Scripture that say that 
His life is the light that enlightens every man and all this kind of stuff. You have the double whammy of being able to know that inside them right now before you ever get there, there is something been deposited of the person of Jesus and the Spirit of God that will respond to this. And why would they respond to anything else? It would be a carnal response. This is the spiritual response because this is the spiritual government that we're under right now. This is what Jesus died and shed his blood to create. I don't have all the answers, but I'm looking for them. And I want to start living them out and I want to start talking about them. God, not remembering their sins, eliminates any further offering or another translation says sacrifice for sins. Now there's all kinds of implications for that. But what it does is it frees us up to realize that we don't have to be searching continually for a sacrifice or an offering for our sin. And, you know, I could be persuaded, I suppose, if somebody had a good argument. But the, the, the undermining assumption of things like this Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14 constantly thing, uh, first of all, it's been done a lot of times and it hasn't worked. And the reason it hasn't worked is not because we weren't, didn't pray enough. The reason is because God's not doing that. He's not the one that brings it, and he's not the one. That's not how it gets fixed. He's not away. He doesn't have to come back. He's here in us, saying, As the Father sent me, so send I you. Here's the Spirit. Now go. And every time we now go throughout history, nations were changed, places were healed. So anyway, God not remembering that eliminates the need for further sin. One of the things that happens in these kind of repentance things all the time, and happens in evangelism all the time, is we're going out there trying to figure out what do you have to do as far as confession and sacrifice so that I know you're sincere. Like me knowing that people are sincere is anything except hubris. What I want them to do is to show some sign that they recognize that Christ died for them and the Father loves them. And whatever that takes. And you know what? You can't necessarily see that in the first three seconds that you meet with them. Especially if you lay a whole bunch of conditions on them. But if you'll... Again, my whole thing, don't take a trip to the mall unless you're going to go down there where they painted Black Lives Matter on the street and talk to people and love them and find out what they're saying. Yes, Laurel. Okay, so... <laughs> Sorry. You're just making me laugh. This is what I talked to the kids about on Wednesday. But I didn't know any of this thing with this guy. But does it seem like these kind of acts, which this isn't the first, this won't be the last. This got a lot of horsepower behind it. Well, I understand, but a lot of them have had a lot of horsepower behind them. And even in smaller arenas, it happens. Do you, one, personally, I think that it um, perpetuates the concept that God is punishing, even though when he took, he already took on the punishment for sin. So there is, should be no punishment. So, but I feel like this just continually makes it go on and on and on. And so therefore it, it causes many, many people to, again, be separated from God, especially God the Father, to, what's the word I'm trying to look for? Instead of relationship, they're still, it's fear-based, 
because they're going to be punished. And so therefore now they have to continue to repent and repent and, and not the repentance we talk about, which is changing the way they think. It's to beg God to forgive them for something they may or may not have actually done, which then makes a mockery of what he actually did do on the cross, I think. In relationship to the, bad, the things that, that we do do. There's sins going on in our country right now. There's sins of violence. There's sins of theft. There's sins of accusation. There's sins of self-loathing. There's sins of hatred, racism. The response that God wants for that is, look, my son sacrificed for this then once for all. Now let's get beyond it. Let's talk. Let's, let's love one another. So anyway, this is the simple part. A simple summary of that sin has or is forgotten. It's hard to believe. I understand it. I'm standing here talking about it. I'm going, man, that's hard to believe. Bless you guys. Purified. Think of some really disgusting person that's self-centered and abusive. Jesus has already purified the thing that's driving them. So they're operating on a shadow. They're operating on something. I don't know what it is exactly. But I know the reason I don't know is because I've never looked. I've never sat down with this as a, an unalterable understanding of the government that I live under and what God's purposes are. And I'm saying, Lord, now show me what this means. I've seen, I've seen some glimpses of it. We were uh, on, at another online conference about two and a half weeks ago, and there was a guy named Jamie Winship, his wife Donna. They have a ministry called Identity Exchange, and they started their ministry in Indonesia as missionaries for 10 years and then um, worked all around Jordan, Syria, and all these places. And they got to the place where they understood that everybody, everybody had the capacity to hear and sense the leadership of the Lord in their life, if you'd give them a chance to do it. And so they they uh, moved back. It's a big story. I'm just going to play it when we get to the things. It's worth a night. But anyhow, the idea is just tell the truth. Help people create an environment where they can tell the truth. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid of being a failure. I'm afraid of, of uh, my life not counting for anything. These are all the kinds of accusations. The devil constantly goes, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not. And this stuff's this is how it gets out. So anyway, this is a foundation. Our sins are forgotten. Our, our sins have been purified. Our sins have been uh, propitiated. One way to think about that, there's no longer anything, any inherent power in our sin to separate us from God. Deal with that. If you're separated from God, it's not because of your sin. It's because you're blindness. Or because you're looking at yourself or you're looking in the wrong direction. No part of Jesus is coming again to deal with sin. I don't know if that's too bold an interpretation of that, that he's going to return a second time, appear a second time, return a second time without sin. But I think, if, I think it's like trying to have a conversation with God about your sins that he forgot. I think if everybody's excited about Jesus coming back so those sinners will really get their way, they're going to be seriously disappointed. Because that ain't why he's coming. That's what this says. The sacrifice is once for all, and there's no further need for another one. All right. 759. So uh, we can break into a couple of groups, and here's some questions. This is the what are we going to do about part. I'm going to raise a stink about calling this thing the return and not having Jesus in the center of it. Uh, but... 
That's just one thing. So what do you do with and how do you think about your past sins? It's going to be affected by this. If you're still stuck in shame over or guilt under it, you probably need to get out of there. If you still remember them, you're doing that without God's help. Same to this. What if you sin or behave badly today or tomorrow? Is there any degree in which you live in fear of damaging how the Lord feels about you by stumbling or getting carnal or watching too much news and letting an expletive out about somebody with a person's vulnerability? Okay. Sorry. What if you are exposed by someone because of a past sin? How are you going to handle it? How vulnerable are you going to be to a sense of, oh, or shame, or disappointment, or something? What if you have lingering consequences from uh, sin? Like, how about scars? I'm talking physical ones. I listened to Dan Muller the other day, and he was talking about uh, the healings that come from cutters, you know, when cutters and stuff like that get healed. And he says, it makes perfect sense. He, 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 he looks at these people and he says, are you that same person? No. Why? I know Jesus and I'm not in pain anymore. If you could go back with the knowledge of Jesus, would you cut yourself? No. He goes, then why carry this scar? Let's pray. He said, we don't see everybody healed, but we see a lot of them. People start squealing right out there in the eye. Oh my God, it's gone. That's awesome. But there's a reason it's awesome. This is it. The New Testament. All the stuff, Jen, that we do when we assert things and we pray. It's all built in to the once for all atonement that comes out of this covenant. And God's not hesitant to, to withhold that. He's, he's, I mean, He's not hesitant to, to share that. How about broken relationships? Sin has broken a lot of relationships. What what are we going to do with them? Habits. There's things you can develop a habit at in the midst of when you're sinning that that is no longer who you are. Can we ask God to deliver that? I think so. And how about wounds? Emotional wounds? That kind of stuff. Guys, the, the... if we'll take the new covenant as seriously as Jesus does and the Father does, I think things will change in our lives. I think, uh, I think elements of our sonship, elements of our authority, restorative elements of our ministry and life and possibilities. And then the bonus question when we get into the groups is if you can give an example of the New Testament confession of sin. Because even the idea of confessing your sins is built mostly on a sin management model and not a say the same thing as God said about it. Because, I'll give you an example on this confession of sin thing. This is what God says about your sin. The word confession is homologia. Homo means the same thing, the prefix. Like homosexual, it's the same sex homogenized is both the cream and the milk being brought into one thing. Homo means the same. Logia means to say or speak. So what confession is 
in the New Covenant is saying the same thing about your sin. The same thing as what or who. And I would advocate this, the New Covenant. On the other hand, if the New Covenant is ignored and we appeal back to the dedication of Solomon's temple, we're going to be saying our sin about our sin and being encouraged to do so. Let's all gather in Washington, D.C. and talk about our sins as sins. No, let's quickly get someplace and say, in Jesus' name, I join my confession to the fathers. My sins are forgotten by him. That has to do some good. It has to change things. Okay. Anyway. So those are the questions. I have. We can ask some now, and then we can break into groups. Seems like uh, we have a few. We probably just stay right in here. You guys can speak up on Zoom if you got anything. Anybody? Resonate? Okay, buddy. Just it, it, it's amazing um, the how the flesh will remember our sin because the flesh wants to condemn, but now, now Romans eight, there's now no condemnation. Amen. For those who walk in, in the spirit, not in the flesh, and I think even what I've gone through the last twenty four hours. It was just the Father showing me how that's not who you are. Praise God. And because when you've got to go through your past and present it to somebody, it can so easily bring you down. But as Dad says, Al, get your eyes off the problem onto me. Yeah, yeah. And that's the biggest thing is, is often we look at a problem, often we look at a situation and it will drag all that other stuff back in because the flesh wants to bring condemnation. It wants to bring, you know, all the things that the cross doesn't give. Right, right. Two things yeah. that you, two things you said, uh, Al, that I want to uh, uh, just point out. That claim in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's an outrageous claim. There's no condemnation. It's not there's less condemnation. <coughs> It's not that there's a way out of condemnation. There's no condemnation. God couldn't inspire that passage of Scripture to be written if this wasn't true. Because it's like a blank check. And then, the Lord telling you, don't look at that situation. Why? Because it's history. It's already been dealt with. There's nothing to gain by looking at the sins of our past. If we look at Jesus, if we look at the Father, then we're being pulled out of the definition of those sins into the possibilities of, of being led by the Spirit. And the Scripture says that those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. It's unlimited acceptance and possibility. That's good. That's good stuff. Yeah. I was just going to say that I grew up with the other model. Mm -hmm, me too. Um, and so that's pretty ingrained in how I know to do things. But what I have noticed is that when my system, spirit, soul, body, responds contrary to God or to his presence in me, then I am 
I am quick to be on my face going, oh my gosh, this isn't right, this isn't right, I'm yeah. so sorry. Yeah. And when the enemy wants to come in to hold you down to that place, um, I don't think God minds that we keep saying, I'm so sorry. But what he wants us to hear is when he's saying, get up, yeah, get up. Yeah. And and it's not a, an issue of, you know, the scripture says, confess your sins one to another, or he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Mm-hmm. It's done. He has forgiven us. Mm-hmm. It's it's appropriating and applying what he's already given to us. Mm-hmm. And so when you do sin, there is that sensitivity in the spirit that this isn't right. It doesn't match mm-hmm. his nature because if we're living the way we're mm, called to live, yeah. um, that nature is going to empower to that nature is going to blend if it comes against that nature it's going to be uncomfortable absolutely and there are measures and degrees of how awful we can feel about stuff we've done but um the other thing i was going to say is that in matthew it says agree with your accuser quickly lest he take you to court and so when you when you go to that place before the Lord and you know the enemy's holding something against you, you know God is not holding something against that is you. That's a beautiful observation. That's um, why you can afford to do that. That's right. Yeah. And you always that's why you win. don't need to defend yourself. That's right. That's right. And you come in and it's it's appropriating the blood of Christ that's already been given to you. And so that those were the two things that I thought of is the sensitivity when we do sin. There's nothing wrong with saying, I'm so sorry, that's what I did. So we're confessing it. Um, And the Father doesn't remember it. This is how I saw it, was the Father doesn't remember our sin. Jesus certainly has because he covered it. Mm -hmm. And the Holy Spirit helps us walk out of it. So um, it's kind of that three-in-one thing. I I think there's all kinds of ways that we can explore how this works out. Like I've got that mental image where the Holy Spirit is, is working with us and he draws us to God. And I got some big, ugly thing hanging off the side of my head. And the Father sees it. Now, I normally would be ashamed to bring that to God because I don't like the look of it, you know. I don't want to be thought of that way. But then the Father looks at that and he looks at Jesus and he rubs his hands like this and goes, I see in you the exact solution to this issue. That's the new covenant or some form, like what you're talking about, same situation. And I think it's a brilliant observation that we can agree with our accusers because the accusation or the truth of it is not a threat to our acceptance to this because of this covenant. Ronnie? I think I've thought through this, but probably not fully. So here we go. Give an example of a New Testament confession of sin. Okay. One word. Ready? Okay. Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. You know what? The Lord would know what part of your heart that came from. And it would be doable, I think. Doable. Yes, Laurel. Sorry. One, I want to clarify. I said propitiate because I was reading your board and I meant perpetuate. It perpetuates the movement of not allowing God to have done what he actually did. I got you. Okay. But for the third question, what if you're exposed by someone for your past sins? Would it be wrong to say you're incorrect? <laughs> that didn't happen. Right yeah, or something yeah. like that. I mean, I mean, how you're gonna, yeah. I don't mean that in a mean thing. Yeah, no. But yes, like I've moved past that. The Lord like has moved Dan, past what Dan, that. What I heard Dan say, he says, "Are you are you the person that did that?" Yes. Would you do that now? No, no, of course not. If I could take what I knew about Jesus back, I wouldn't do that. Well, then the person that's you isn't the same person that did that. 
Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, but again, the thing is, what I, again, what I love about what you said, if we get our thinking straight about this, all of these kind of things can become occasions to engage in a conversation with people and engage in a relationship with them and see change and help them see change. Anybody else? So, um, I think there's a book about this that's like the king. There's always a book, Richard says, yeah. Um, You're blocking the camera. It's it's my spotlight. It's my time. No, um, (laughs) it's called Hyper Grace. You what? Hyper Grace. Hyper Grace? Have you ever heard that term? I have heard. I know, yeah, Michael Brown. Yeah, um, it's really interesting because I have a lot of people who, you know, when we were first getting into these things, they were like, you're nuts. Yeah. You know, you think that it's just all gone. No, like there's more judgment to come. Uh-huh. And, and there there's so many people that believe this. Good yeah. people. They really do. Yeah. And and it's so hard to have a conversation because you have to dismiss so many scriptures, one right after the other, to come up with this logical, you know, mm-hmm. a, a novel about it. Yeah. What do you, I guess my, my my curiosity is spiked here where I, I'm Wondering what your thoughts are on their take of that. Have you read into that or studied it at yeah, all? Yeah, I've read Hyper Grace. And what were what what do they boil it down to in the end? Uh, it's like like the new covenant isn't no no complete. The, the thoughts are generally not about the new covenant. That's my that's the bone I pick. Is that it, it's about the cross and it's about grace as an abstract concept applied by Jesus through the cross. So grace is uh, and then so you come up with with. Uh, definitions like grace is uh, unmerited favor. So I don't have to change it all to function in grace because I don't have to deserve it. I don't even have to stop anything. Hardly, you know, and then they'll take a thing where Paul says, well, should we sin that grace might abound? God forbid. See, this is what's beautiful. I don't know what to do with the sin that, that manifests or appears to manifest after it's been dealt with. But I know the key to, to dealing with it properly is to realize that we live under this, this, this covenant and that this sin has really been taken care of. So the idea of hypergrace, almost anybody who argues against that is arguing against it and they'll use terms like uh, lazy grace or slick grace or, or uh, no personal accountability, no personal responsibility. This thing is full of personal responsibility. I was going to mention it when you were talking uh, when we get into chapter 12, there's a whole big section there that God disciplines those He loves. And if you're not being disciplined, you're not being treated like a son. There's a whole big thing that cast off the sin which so easily entangles you. This is not promoting sin. That's what they think hypergrace. Hypergrace is a reaction to, to people going, like, I, I don't have to uh, ask for forgiveness for anything. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to say I'm sorry. I mean, geez, that was in the, the movie in the 70s, you know? Uh, love means never having to say you're sorry. I'm dating myself. Uh, the new... Yeah, I know. The, the, new, the new covenant has provision to actually deal with sin the way God does. We can learn that our sin is covered. We can learn not to walk under the memory and the guilt and the shame of it. 
that's what the new, the new covenant allows. Um, we can learn to be cleansed from it. Scriptures like the one in 1 John begin to make sense. The claims in Romans. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus who repent. And I'm not against repentance. I think, I think the reason that repentance has lived on and on and on in evangelical Christianity as a crying and snotting, confessional kind of uh, self-loathing is because we don't think of it in terms of, Papa, I'm sorry. This is not who I am. I understand that. This is not how I've been called to relate to you and the world around me. I don't have all the answers. Don't get me wrong. But, but this is the place we have to start. And this is the environment, the culture, in which we have to pull our answers. And this is the way we have to face sin and problems in the world. We don't go back to the porch of Solomon's temple and do it. And I would love to go there and see the thing. I bet it's spectacular. This is the government that we can appeal to. Richard. Part of the... Um, all my heavy-duty experiences with God have never been about sin. It's always been about his love. And uh, Paul talked about dying to the law and attaching ourselves to Christ mm -hmm. and to bear the, 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 uh, the fruits that God has. And this is part of that fruit, the fruit that sin, is no, sin has been abolished. And so when we, when we get to that place of understanding that, we can see ourselves differently we can see others differently you know i i'm not exactly sure where it would say die to the law I, I i recall maybe but i know it says die to sin and and i know the law served a purpose to expose sin uh and to to manage it for a season um which one is it die to law or die to sin die to law Okay. Um, you know, I, I also know, I know that uh, um, one thing that Paul says that makes sense in, in light of the New Covenant is that we reckon ourselves dead to sin, to count ourselves as dead to sin. There's a lot. What is it, Romans 7 4? What does it say? Romans 7. The law is the thing that brings out the sin. I mean, that's the one that exposes, that's the one that focuses on the sin. And when we, when we die to the law, we're dying to that old covenant. We're dying to that, uh, that thing that, that causes us to be sin conscious. Well, and sin consciousness is, is a big issue. Um, it's one of the things when we get in chapter 9 and 10, talk about how the sacrifice of Jesus can cleanse our conscience. A guilty conscience. And uh, that's a big deal. So again, I don't know all the answers. I know that this is this is the uh, only act in town. This is the government under which we live. This is the culture under which we uh, are going to find expression as sons. And uh, this is the way we can look up and look forward and make a big difference. It is different than what we're used to. It's different than what we're accustomed to. It's different than what most of us have been taught. And, uh, and um, I'm not talking about losing any of the beauty or the 
elegant to the history of our past. What I am talking about is the kind of Western evangelical Christianity that, that um, just anything that keeps us more conscious of sin than we are of Jesus is problematic. Anybody else on Zoom? Everything okay? Yeah. Okay, yeah, Diane. Uh, good. <laughs> Go ahead, Janet. It's, it's kind of like, uh, no, no. Uh, I'm sorry, Tracy? Terry. Terry, okay. So what Terry said about agreeing with your accusers on the way so that, you know, you don't go in. Uh, and, and the fact that we can afford to do that because God is on our side, established, he's forgotten, he's, he's, he's set it up. It's always possible to look back and say, if I had done something different, would things have been different? The answer is almost 100% of the time, yes to that. The beauty of the New Covenant is that we don't have to go there or we don't have to let that be our last thing. And I'm not admonishing you not ever think of that. But what I'm saying is, anything that we go back there and spend energy on is energy taken from believing for what God could do, which is anything. I mean, He can do everything. And if the Lord speaks to you and says, you know, uh, there's some repentance or there's a conversation to have with the kids or there's this kind of thing, just do that. But that's a present thing. That's not a past thing. And it, it, it's, it's, it's not about sin. It's about life. It's about being with God now and living that way. So the answer to the question about if I'd done something different, would it be different is always yes. But it's not relevant in this culture. Only if the Lord is, uh, you know, causing you to think of something and come to Him, then then there's cleansing available, there's, there's ministry available, there's that kind of stuff. Like I say, I don't have all the answers, Janet, but I know that there's, there's not a lot of good that comes from abdicating this culture 
and these truths to try to figure out another set of truths to solve guilt or shame or problems or anything. So, Because there's freedom in here. And sonship and meaning. Larry, can I say something? Absolutely. Um, I can't find this scripture. I don't know where it is, but uh, I found this other one, 1 John 1, 7. Um, I don't know. This may be an answer to one of those questions you have up there. But I think personally, um, one of the major problems in the body of Christ is the amount of light that they have. And so um, this scripture from 1 John 1, 7, but, with, but if we are walking in the light, that's a criteria right there. And many in the body of Christ don't walk in, or they walk in limited light, and they plateau out. As he is in the light, we are all united with one another. And that's, and I don't know, that's a key right there, united with one another. Um, and the blood of Jesus Christ, or Jesus, his son, makes us clean from all sin. And so um, I found personally that it's it's the light that that people have or don't have, or they have limited light and being able to speak into that light that they operate in to bring them to other, a deeper light uh, in Christ. Um, and I don't know if that applies to one of the, the questions that you have, but I'm still looking for that other scripture and I'm having a hard time finding it. So I just thought it, I thought I'd interject that. First uh, John 1, 7, and it, it yeah. talks about the blood of Christ cleansing him from sin. That scripture comes before the scripture that says, confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you. That's 1 John 9, uh, 1, 9. So the cleansing of the blood of Christ is a preface for the confession of your sins in First John one nine, and I, I I do think light has something to do with it. This is the place where where it is. We'll probably get in there. I don't know. I'm trying to think as we move forward in Hebrews if, if that's articulated or not. But let's go. Yeah, you're gonna have something. Ben? I didn't quite hear Janet, but. Uh, just want to speak to something probably in that realm. Um, you know, the impact of sin normally affects other people, mm -hmm. not just us. So yeah. I think that's the rub. Um, so while, while we want to appropriate this and be free from the shame and the self-condemnation and all the stuff that weighs us down and groveling in that or feeling like we got to convince somebody to forgive us or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. I, I think, you know, I think this is all a, an answer to try to get free from that. Mm -hmm. But I, I would not negate that in that place of freedom the Holy Spirit may prompt you to, to do something Absolutely. about that. As he, a he may say, dialogue as a why don't you mm -hmm. do this? I totally that agree. could be 
saying, you know what, 20 years ago, the Lord brought this back to me, and I know this, and I'm sorry, but it's going to come from a different place, not of groveling, not of um, trying to get them to be okay even, but it's just more of a a free act that the Lord led you to do. So I, I just... I don't think we can d- dismiss everything when we look at uh, yeah, stuff let, like this, this that we're good. free, but yeah. there's no impact. Right. L- l- let me let me clarify something. That's a, that's a really, really good point. It just, and I'll just say this so you know where my heart is. I don't think that the new covenant encourages us to, ne- to neglect the past. I think the new covenant allows us to deal with the past without the shame of the sin of the past. And, yeah, okay, good, good. Because I, I absolutely 100% agree with that. 100% agree. Matter of fact, I don't think people can deal honestly with their past if you don't uh, come to the place where you understand that this is it. It's the same as going to court. Uh, if it's, you know, uh, the reason that most people, I think, have such a hard time being honest about their past is because they're afraid of the shame of it. And there's no... This is what the New Covenant cries out. There's no reason to be ashamed because Jesus has already dealt with it. Now, we're going to get into chapter uh, 10, and there's a big contrast between trusting and not trusting. There's a big contrast between sinning and not sinning. But it's... Uh, it, it, this is the. This is the... The, again, this is the government that we are under that allows us the maximum amount of freedom based on the recognition of what Christ has done once for all. Yes, Vicki. So you asked about a New Testament declaration, I guess, of being a sinner. Uh-huh. Is that what you're asking? Say again. The, 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 sorry. the bonus oh, question. Oh, yeah, yeah, the New Testament confession. Okay, so in First Timothy, I think it is, Paul says that he's the chief sinner, the chief sinner. Mm-hmm. Um, so he uses that word sinner, but he doesn't go into what he did. And I, I think if you look at things, I mean, even when Jesus is talking to the adulterous woman, he says, go and sin no more. He doesn't say anything about what just happened, <laughs> you know, in that sense. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if, you know, we take confession of sin to mean, tell me everything you've ever done wrong. And I mean, I can remember going down the aisle and listening to people, leading people to the Lord and having them recite every sin in their life. And instead of just having the time with the, with Jesus to take care of that. Yeah. So I think there's, there's needs to be a, a differentiation between confession of sin meaning the acts of the things that you do. I think that's like between you and you and God. And when we're talking to other people, yeah, I sin. And if the spirit says, tell them something, mm-hmm. then you, you do that. Yeah, that um, but I, I'm not sensing that there was actually like a prayer because Paul doesn't say that he did that. That, you know the apostles that that he works with and says, you don't know what spirit you're of. We don't see John and yeah. and them kneeling down saying any of that. Yeah. 
But I do think we do confess our sins to the Father. We do confess our sins that way as the Holy Spirit leads us. But yeah, there are examples of confession of sin. Uh, I can kind of see a, an example. And then, and then we're going to quit. Ronnie, yours will be the last question. Um, the, the dialogue that Jesus had with the woman at the well. There was a New, New Testament confession of some sin in her life. But it didn't bring any condemnation. What it brought was liberty. Freedom. He told me everything I did in my life. It was amazing. I think, and, and again, I'm not putting these questions up here because I have all the answers. I'm just saying we have the freedom to ask them now. In this covenant, we have the freedom to ask them without fear, separation, judgment, or shame. And it's not judgment when the Lord says, wow, you really screwed up with that. That's not judgment. That's an invitation to get clean and free. That's discipline. That's being treated like a son. Ronnie. So besides the idea of the New, Con New Testament confession of sin being the word whoops, mm -hmm. um, if you could you back up one slide? I can. The idea of confession meaning agreeing with what God is saying about mm -hmm. it, I can thank God that I sinned and he's already forgotten it. I can thank God that he's purified me from what I just did. Yeah. I can thank God he abolished it, etc. Yeah, exactly. So that's a... Me another method of confessing I think so. our sin. I had a little, uh, this, I'll just close with a story. I had a little uh, encounter with a demon one time. And it was when we had first moved into the building we're moving back to. Uh, and it was kind of creepy. And I was standing on what was the balcony at the time. It's been turned into a room since then. And I don't know how you guys have ever had interaction with demonic accusing presences and stuff. But man, the hair stood up my arm. I got that creepy feeling. And, and I, I felt like I heard this thing say, because there was a lot of trouble in that building before we got there. Uh, I felt like I heard this thing say, I'm going to point out every sin that everyone in this place has ever done. I stood there for a second, and thank God this came out of my mouth. Because I said, well, when you do that, we're going to look at Jesus on the cross every single time. And I kid you guys not, I heard at the other end of the building a shriek and this thing bugged. It was awesome. I got goosebumps right now. That, I don't tell a lot of those kind of go, holy ghost stories, but that was pretty, pretty pumped. But, I, but I, this thing rose up in me and we're going to look at Jesus and talk about him and celebrate his work every single time. That's the new covenant, I think. That's where we look. That's why there's blood there. Think about it. The celebration of communion. We probably need to do a little bit more often in church now. That's what you're looking at. Oh my gosh. Discern the body rightly. He died for all of us. He died for all of us. His body was bruised for the things that we brought on ourselves. It's just powerful. I don't have all the answers, but let's, let's, st let's stay here. This is why I don't want to jump back to to Solomon's day. We can help it. Because I don't think it'll help anything. All right.